1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would. Your copy of God's Word will be in it all for the next 45 minutes. For As I said last week, for the first 30 minutes, we've been speaking to the Lord, and now in the next 45, we're going to hear from Him as He speaks through His Word. So it'd be a blessing to do that together with you. If, as always, it's our desire to minister to you, if there's any way we can answer questions about the Word, things that we can minister to you, uh, and please contact us there in the seat right in front of you. You can let us know how we can help you. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 7. We're in a continuing study through the pastoral epistles. We're in 1 Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Verse 3, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's stop right there. If you've been with us, you know we've been looking at the qualifications for an elder underneath the study guidelines for public worship. As Paul visited Ephesus with Timothy, he did that because there was some trouble there, an older church that had got off course, and so some things had to change. One of those things was some of the leadership, and so he dealt with some of that early in in chapters 1 and 2, and then we get on into chapter 3. Because there's leadership issues, Paul has to give some qualifications for those who lead the church. The passage has yielded a number of principles which are just as relevant for the church today as they were when they were given in the first century. I'll go through them very briefly with you as we've reviewed a number of these and taken a lot of time with these points. If you missed any of these things, that study is available and you can catch it online. But the first four had to do with calling. The office of overseer or elder bishop is held by a man, and it's very clear there that that is the case. And then number two... Uh, There is a definitive call in the background of the qualified man, two different types of desires, and we saw both of those. Number three, the office includes the labor of oversight. So it is a laborious job, heavy in labor for a lifetime. And then number four, the Holy Spirit call uh, and the desire to lead the church, the Lord has said, a wonderful calling. In spite of the difficulties, it is a good thing. And then the rest of the principles have to do with the standard of godliness for those uh, who lead the church, and they have to meet those. It's not a negotiable. And then we've seen there's just one standard of godliness for everyone. It's just those that are in the pulpit have to model that. But in the pew and the seats, one standard. And so we get to number five. He must be in a present state of blamelessness. The Bible calls that above reproach. The words have to do with whether there's a handle on a vessel that can be grabbed. And so this is something that can't be the case. And then we noted that everything else that comes after this passage right there, blamelessness, defines what's meant by blamelessness. And so we move on to six. He is, a devoted, to, he is devoted to one woman in heart and mind. That's a one-woman man idiom in the Bible. Um, and the Bible says it is the husband of one wife. He is the husband of one wife. And then number seven, He is a man that does not participate in drinking alcohol. That is the word temperate. That is the Greek word wineless, which allows him to be alert, watchful, vigilant, and clear-headed. And then number eight, prudent. He has to set the example of seriousness and earnestness and soundness of mind. Number nine, the Bible calls, it says he has to be respectable. So he has to have a life that reflects organization. And then number 10, he has to be hospitable. 
This is the word about being a friend to someone you don't know. This is hosting strangers in your home. And the, the, uh, those who lead the church and those in the church have to be willing and desire and seek after that. Then number 11, the overseer must be one who is apt to teach, the Bible says. So he has to be able to teach in a way that the body of Christ can be built up and nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine and equipped for good work. So he has to approach the word of God with that, uh, those goals in mind. And number 12, the overseer then, again, uh, can't be beside wine. That's the word. So he's careful. Not only is he wine less, he doesn't drink. He can't be around those and have associations with those who are doing it. So locations and associations are in view there. So the standard of qualification then, which is to be held uncompromisingly by those who lead as an example, is to avoid being around those who are drinking, being beside or in the place of alcohol for means of testimony. Number 13, the example of the overseer, it says he's not pugnacious, so he, he has to have an even temper. He's not a giver of blows. That's the actual word. Instead, he is gentle. That's number 14. This is patience and restraint rolled into one. The overseer must exhibit one of the fruit of the Spirit. Again, it has to do with self-control, and it is, he doesn't give blows. He is gentle. And then we saw in Galatians chapter 5, 22 through 24, that these same fruits of the Spirit are to be visible in each believer. So it's not some second standard for you and, and this first standard for me. Uh, Galatians 5, 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And here's one of them, peace, patience. There's another one, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Here's another one, gentleness. So all these have to be the case for you too. And so the next one we saw is peaceable, so it goes right along with it. Basically, that's the word not contentious. So in other words, he's not seeking for a fight. If he's a guy that always loves to fight with someone, argue with someone, that he's not qualified. Number 16, he's free from the love of money. The example of the overseer and those who also are under him, they have to exhibit uh, and that their attention is not fixed on monetary reward constantly. That that is not their main goal. And so we ended with that last time, and then right at, right at the end of the service last time, we got to verses 4 and 5, and we looked at family life. And this is an interesting pa passage here. It says, he must be one who manages his own household well. And so qualified leadership in the church is founded on, we saw last time, and validated by successful spiritual leadership in the family. And there are several things at work here that we saw, and at first he must lead his house well. And we saw that that means that his wife, his children, if the Lord has blessed him with either or both, it means his resources, his assets, his bank account. Overall, one standard, here it is, he has to manage well to a required level of proficiency the assets that God has entrusted to him. And that's the model. And so he has to do that. That's one godly standard for every man, not just the pulpit like all the rest of them. And then this new part that we didn't have time for last time, it says keeping his children under control with all dignity. We also saw he has to have children who are submissive then with dignity. They come up under him. That's the word. We saw from numerous passages, which we won't go through again, it just means that they are, when they're young, they're taught to respect and obey through discipline and instruction. This is very clear. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 6. Disobedience or respect has to be dealt with by painful negative consequences from Scripture. That's very, very clear. In order to bring them up under you, that's going to be part of the process. And then for first-time obedience, and we saw that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about asking them 10 times and finally they do it. But they come up under you in first-time obedience. And when we looked at our passage from 1 Timothy, then we went over to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we saw three words that can really correspond with both of these requirements. 
And those words in, in this application of this model, dealing with children, it should include, number one, steadfast resolve, number two, understanding, and number three, love. Steadfast resolve just means that you make it advisable in your family to obey. By disciplining disobedience, you resolve to discipline and instruct and reward obedience. It makes it advisable to obey you. Not just because they'll be punished, but when they obey, they'll be rewarded. Basically, the way the Lord deals with you and I. Number two, you make it reasonable to obey by your consistent application of the requirements and making them understandable so it's not confusing. It doesn't change all the time. It's the same requirements all the time. You make it reasonable. They can understand to an extent that they're to obey. And then thirdly, you make it enjoyable to obey by your unconditional love expressed consistently through self-sacrifice, and deeds that are in harmony with the Bible describes as love for one another. So when you do that over time, you make it advisable, reasonable, and enjoyable to obey. And this applies to children who are young and still in your home. And we looked at a lot of passages we won't go through again, and you can catch up on those, but we'll see that in Titus, as we come up on Titus, where again we have a pastoral epistle of a pastor pastoring in Crete. Uh, he's dealing with older children there, and he says about older children, they must affirm the faith of the gospel. They must be believers. So here the family life is another objective standard by which a man's suitability for leadership in the church has to be measured. And if he doesn't have that kind of family, then what's the result? And here's where we left off last time. Look at verse 5. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the rhetorical answer is what? He can't. That's the rhetorical answer. And we didn't look at this last week, but I just want to mention this because this word is so full. It's a single Greek verb to take care of, epi, which is upon, and melo, which is to care or support, and it's future middle indicative. The idea there, then, is this. Something in the elder's actions should cause to occur a taking care of the church of God. You're going to see a direction in the elder's actions reflected in his family, which will show that he can do what he's supposed to do inside the church. And the reason we paused here a moment is that in this, in a, kind of in a sense, this sums up what an elder is to do with the household of God. He's going to take care of. That's how Paul sums it up to Timothy. And he won't be able to cause it to occur if he can't bring his own family up in holiness and godliness. And there's a really informative instructional illustration as the Bible explains the Bible, and it's found in Luke chapter 10. It's one of my favorite passages. I think you'll recognize it. It's one of the few places where this same verb it deals with to take care of is found. And in verse 30, Jesus replies and he says, and he's going to tell a story. It's not a parable. It's an actual situation. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, and by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also when he came to the place, he saw him passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, felt compassion, verse 34, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and put them on his own beast, and brought him to an end, market, and here it is, took care of him. And on the next day, verse 35, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, again, take care of him. And whatever you need more that you spend, I'll return and repay you. And the verb has a very wide scope here in our illustration. And I think that helps us reflect back well on why someone who can't lead their own family also can't take care of the church of God. Because there's a number of things that are listed here. One of them includes kindness and empathy, again, and sympathy. 
It includes time. It includes binding up of wounds, a sacrificing of resources. And all that is a really wonderful guide. And there are some things that you're to do as a minister, and we've seen a number of those as they reflect on the names of pastor and shepherd and overseer and all the things we've looked at already. And the Lord has made clear the things you are to do. And that's what it takes because that's what it's all about in leading the church. And some of these ways it's reflected in Luke 10 tell you what it's going to take to take care of somebody or something. And taking care of the church, according to our passage, there's no better place to see whether a man has a life committed to meeting needs than to see what it looks like that he does with the people in his own household, right? Does he care about them the way the Bible says to do it? Is his life committed to them? Does he work hard to meet needs? Is he taking care of his wife? Does she come up under him in, in his authority? Does, do his children line up under him? Is he, he able to lead them to be believers? Does he sacrifice for them? If those things are not clear, or the outcomes in his home betray that they are not there, then that gives us this next principle, principle number 17, if the overseer fails to take care of the biblical requirements for him in the family household, same word, oikos, then he won't be able to take care of another household, the household of faith, which is the church. Now let's look at our next two verses, and we're going to finish up this section, Lord willing, today. And these are obviously the next two examples of blamelessness from verse 2. And you're going to see again that they line up well with this one we just looked at. There's going to be some negative consequences if the elder doesn't line up that way. And of course, that passes on down to everyone else. Look at verse 6, if you would. Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, the first one has to do with maturity on his spiritual journey, and I think you can see that. Verse 6 says, not a new convert, neophutos. It actually is an adjective describing farming. It has to do with being newly planted. If you're a gardener, if you're a, if you're a plant person, you realize a brand new plant, tender, fresh, vulnerable, that's the issue here. Now, I think uh, obviously the intent of how it's to be translated, the New American Standard got right, not a new convert. It's used as a simile. Paul's speaking about someone who's new in the faith. Now, I want to point out a few things here because I think it'll help clarify. It doesn't say how new. So the qualification has to be understood relatively. It could have easily said he has to be a believer for at least 10 years or he has to be a believer for at least two years. It could have easily been there, but it's not. And I think that's important. So we're going to make some connections to how we can understand this. In a church like Ephesus, which had been planted perhaps 15 years before, uh, there should be mature men who could pass this qualification. They weren't newly planted. And I think we can get a good sense of this indefinite time qualification here for 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, which we'll just see in just a few weeks. 1 Timothy 3.10, Paul is talking about deacons, and we're going to see the qualifications for them. And what he says when he says, uh, he talks about deacons being appointed to that spot, he says in verse 10, these men must also first be tested. I think that's an interesting way to approach that. And then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. In other words, when you put someone in this serving office, you first have to watch them serve. So in other words, they're already about serving and under the radar and doing it faithfully. They're not, they're not trying to catch anybody's attention. They're serving because they know that's what they should do. And then you're to approach them after you've seen them 
uh, do what they're going to do, and you put them in the office so that that becomes the example of what it's supposed to look like, you see? A lot of churches get this wrong. They put people, they, they, deacons are put there because they have a lot of money or maybe they're a good administrator or whatever, and they're put there to lead the church and guide the pastor. That is not their job. Their job is to serve the church in the ability and equipping that the Holy Spirit has given them. And so you have to examine them, and I think first being tested is a good way to think about this whole idea of putting someone in a position of leadership. Obviously not newly planted, but how old? Well, let's test them first. And there are some other qualifications for deacon that we're going to look at shortly. But later in this letter, we're going to see in a few months, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, this is a really great way to look at the eldership. He says this, he's speaking about elder appointments. Why? Because Timothy is going to have to appoint some. First of all, Paul put two out when he was there because they wouldn't repent. And then there's going to be some others who haven't come up under these qualifications that uh, Paul has written to Timothy in a letter. So some perhaps will have to step down. Maybe they're drinkers. Maybe they go in the way of wine. Maybe they're, they love money. It may be a number of things that disqualify them. Their family's not in order, so they're going to have to put step aside, and he's going to have to put people in. So in thinking of that, he says in verse 22, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and therefore share responsibility for the sins of others. What's that mean? Well, in the ordination of elders, there's a laying on of hands. We saw that before, and we'll look at it again, of kind of an ordination service, like a commissioning service for those who the office has been recognized, that the, uh, the equipment from the Holy Spirit has been recognized, and those guys are put in ministry. He says to Timothy, don't do that too quickly. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to share in the responsibility of the sins they bring to the pulpit. They foist those things on the church because you weren't careful and you're going to be in trouble. Keep yourself free from sin, he says. Don't do that. Number 23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow afterwards. In other words, as you look at the guy, it may be obvious some of the problems that he has that it has to come into order. It may not be, though. They may be hidden pretty well, and you're going to find out later. And that's what happens with hidden sins. Given enough time, they won't be hidden anymore. They're going to be visible which is why you keep a short sin list. But likewise also, the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So the idea, of course, just very clearly, don't share in the sins that are going to be brought to bear in the pulpit because you weren't careful about who you put in. And then I just want to do this as a, just as a footnote. A number of you asked this. So we looked at the two words that deal with drinking. One is wineless and the other is not in the way of wine. And we're very clear. The Bible is very clear what those words mean. This isn't a secret. It just happens to be that this is a big vice in the modern church. And so people don't want to accept it. And so they come to me and a number of people did. And that's great. It's a good question. Why then, if you're not supposed to drink, why is it that Paul told Timothy to have a little wine with your water? Well, the first thing I want to point out is this. What was Timothy drinking? Water, which means he was obeying what? That he was wineless and not in the way of wine. And I think that's a pretty important thing to point out. Number two, realize, as we talked about first century wine and modern wine, they're not one-to-one. -one. First century wine applies for everything from a fresh pressing all the way to wine that is very old and has to be watered down because it's fermented to keep from intoxication happening. So do you think Paul was telling Timothy, hey, by the way, have an intoxicating drink for your stomach's sake? Why would he say that? He wouldn't say that because he'd be telling Timothy to commit a sin. Because to be intoxicated is to be in sin. And that's, that's non-negotiable. The scripture is very clear about that. So what's he saying? Well, have some fresh pressed, have something besides just water 
obviously not intoxicating to help with your stomach, okay? So I think it, instead of arguing against what we see the Scripture clearly say all the way through the Word of God and all the way back in the Old Testament, the hundreds and hundreds of examples of, of the bad reputations connected to drinking and all the different situations that are connected with it, and then the instructions that we see, none of them telling you to actually take in alcohol, but to forbid it. And if it's given only in really restricted situations, this fits perfectly. And so it's a good question. If, if I had three people ask, I figured more people would probably know. And we'll get to this passage and look at it a little more carefully when we get there. But maturity in, in any church, as we think about this, not a new convert. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, be careful not to lay hands on anyone too hastily. But maturity is relative to the age of the church. And I think this is the thing that we need to come away with, because Paul could have said, hey, at least a believer for 10 years, whatever. Here at Berean, let's just make it at home. We're a mature church, certainly by the standards of other parts of the world. We've been around a long time. Uh, many of us are third and fourth generation believers, maybe more. There may be some first generations here, but a lot of uh, second, third, fourth generations. The church has been ministering here for about 35 years. There have been some wonderful mature pastors who have taught during that time and brought the church to this point. We've had men grow up here, go out into the ministry, plant churches, lead other churches, go on the mission field over and over again. You've been under exegetical, expository teaching verse by verse through the Word of God from Jim Furickson's time all the way up to my time. And so when I say that, it's just that you should have a mature understanding of the Word and how to approach the study of it and the teaching of it because you've, that's been modeled over and over again for a very long time. And you can counsel one another, and you do. And you can bear one another's burdens, and you do, and you can, uh, because you're mature, and you can see somebody struggling in sin, and you confess it to one another, and you get into a Bible study, and you get over it together. These are marks of a mature church that's been around long enough to understand that what the Bible says is what we're supposed to do, and we put that on as often as we can, as more often as we get older, and we start doing those things. So, uh, the men who teach you have been here and spent years doing it in all sorts of adverse conditions in both good and bad standards and hard standards. And so they're coming with a lot of experience behind them and you get the benefit of that. So you can see how much time would be needed then at Berea for a new believer to be considered not new anymore, you see? Because you would want to avoid that temptation for them, for that man for sure if he's interested in serving because he may not be nearly as mature as the average believer at Berean, but he may think that he is, you see? And that's the pride potential that we're going to look at in just a minute. But on the other hand, if you're on the mission field, so this is the other side of it, like Eli and Jess, for instance, and you're planning a church in an unevangelized culture, and you lead some people to Christ, and you desire to establish an independent national church with a national pastor who will have the most opportunity for success. He speaks the language in his heart, and he knows what they need, and he's experienced with all the stuff of the culture, and you want that guy in there. Listen, you would have to pick someone out of the group that meets the standards we've already looked at because he can't be in the position of elder if he doesn't meet the standards, and they would be the one that God would use. But the chances of pride would be more limited, right? Because as we saw in, in, verse, in chapter 1, and we'll look at it in just a minute, because he's not much older in the faith, and those are going to come along afterwards, but he's aspired to the office of elder and desires to come up under the qualifications, and then he's chasing after those things. And relatively, he would be the one who was not as new as the new converts who would come afterward. And he may be the one who aspires and has the desire and will come into conformity to all those kinds of things. So because of the relative nature of what spiritual maturity means in any given congregation, we can see that that has to be the application. 
And that's what we'll see in Titus. So if you think about the church in Titus, which is written to a quite recently planted church in Crete, or even Corinth, which we looked at in our study before this one in the first century, it'd be difficult to appoint an elder who'd been in the faith for a while. And with Corinth, you had a very carnal church. So even those who were there and maybe had faith for a little while were very carnal and had a lot of bad habits that Paul had to address. And so that's why in Corinth, it was pastored by well-known men like Paul and then Peter and then Apollos, bringing men along to maturity, excluding the kinds of things that wouldn't be appropriate for those who would lead the church. But at a church plant like Crete, where Titus is there, options are limited. And so there's this relative nature to this requirement. And you have to look at 1 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 5 and, and, you know, don't lay on hands too quickly and take a good hard look at them and don't share in their sins and all of those kinds of things and, and all the qualifications we've been looking at over the last several weeks and the ones we still have to mention. But as you think about Titus, in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, so you have this new plant, you have new believers everywhere, the gospel's just got to the island and perhaps, uh, you know, this is the mission field now. You're looking at someone who is, look at verse 9. So as you're, as you're thinking about Titus 1.9, think about this new plant, thinking about not a new believer, but what's that mean relative to the church plant? Well, looking for someone who is, here it is, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So that's what you're looking for. And I'll share with you in 30 years of ministry the things that I look for in men that, I want, that I'd love to mentor. The very first thing, and I've shared this numerous times, the very first thing I'm looking for is that after a message sometime in the, in, the, in the future there, someone will come up, a man will come up and say, hey, I was thinking about that passage we were studying on Sunday, and I was looking at it myself, and I had a few questions. The first thing that makes me think this is somebody the Lord's grooming to, be, to minister, and to, go, to minister here, and then perhaps go out, because he is what? Holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching. You taught it, he saw that it's true, he wants to learn more, and he wants to put it on, see? So that's what Paul tells Titus to watch for. So that he'll be able both, here it is, to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Both of those things. So he's able to, you teach him, 2 Timothy 2.2, and he's faithful to teach others also. And so he's busy about passing that on. And he's far enough, he's a few, he's a few paragraphs on past the normal person. And so he can refute. And, so, and somebody brings something up, he says, no, that's not it. That's not how that is. This is what the Bible says. Not your opinion. It's what this says. And so that's what you're looking for, see, in this new plant, and that's what you're looking for as men come forward. And you're doing what you know to do as you find out you're supposed to do it. Very, very simple. Seems simple enough, right? Isn't that, that seems like a model for good Christianity, right? Just do what you're supposed to do as you understand you're supposed to be doing it. Because like from 1 Timothy 5.22, you don't want to share responsibility for the sins of others. Putting someone in too soon, and before the Lord, you'll share the responsibility of their error foisted on the church because you weren't careful in putting them in. And so I'll just share again, just, just uh, very transparently, you know, lots of, uh, the Lord's allowed a number of men to come through in 30 years, and they are currently serving in churches around and on the mission field. And I keep a connection with them. There's a rope connected from me to them. And from time to time, I'll call them, or I'll write them a, an email or a text. How are you doing? You know, where, where can I listen to your sermons? I'd love to hear you preach. Those kind of things. I want to hear what's going on. I want to make sure that they're staying with sound doctrine, right? That I'm not kind of sharing responsibility for errors foisted on the church because I laid my hands on them too soon. And so this is a very, very applicable today, just as it was in the first century. And so, qualification number 18, I think you can see this because we've run through it now. He is a man who must have some experience living as a believer in faithfulness before he can be put in a place of the overseer. 
And that's relative, right? It's relative to the age of the church and the maturity of the church, but it still has to be true to some extent, and certainly the qualifications are non-negotiable. And knowing what we do, beloved, about the nature of temptations and pressures from the outside on those who guide the church, and the evil one desiring to trip up those who are in leadership and make the Lord look bad and Christianity look phony, coupled with having to deal with lots of adversaries inside the church, it just seems obvious why this qualification is given. I mean, an older church, a church that's more established, is going to have more insidious types of bad teaching come in. You have lots of PhDs come in, and they, they're going to want to tell you something that isn't true, okay? And a new church, you don't have as many, right? Because you, everybody's very, very new in the faith, and they're just all learning. You're not going to have this complicated stuff coming in. So this is very, very important, and, and that's why the qualification is, is given. And, and then it's paired with a warning. Let's look at that. In verse 6, and not a new convert, here it is, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There's the first warning. He won't become conceited. Tofuo, that's literally filled with hot air, filled with smoke. You don't want to put a new believer in the position of elder because he will be filled with hot air, perhaps, lifted up with pride, KJV says. Typically not useful. Smoke typically going wherever it wants to go. You can't see clearly. That's the danger. So men then, he says, put in this position. So he gives a warning. Make sure you follow this, he says, because if you put a man in a position without the maturity needed, he can fall into pride. Not new to the ministry now. I want to clarify. Not new to the ministry. Lots of people are new to the ministry, but not new to the faith. Okay? Everybody at some point is new to the ministry. They're new to pastoring. But you have to look at whether they're new in the faith. That's what you're looking at. And the issue here, beloved, just to be clear, is not that he might not be as good a teacher of the Bible. He just has to be apt to teach. You know, some of the most powerful men who've ever preached the Word of God did it in monotone. They never looked up, okay? We think you've got to roam all around the stage, and you've got to have a cool setup here, and everything's got to be really cool videos and everything, or you're not a good communicator. Listen, that has nothing to do with anything that has any power, Okay? So it's not that he might, you know, he's going to be a young believer, so he might not be a good teacher. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's not that he might prove to be less than a strong leader. He might be a little bit of a pushover, right? You have to submit to him. He doesn't have to dominate you, okay? Let's get that correct. The church has to come up under the elder. The elder shouldn't have to dominate the people who are under him to make them. So it's not that. The issue here is, if you lift up a new convert in the church and give him a position with other mature godly men over mature godly people, he might have to deal with what? Pride. That's the issue. In fact, he could be qualified in all the other areas from verses 2 through 4. He may be blameless in those areas. He may have a wonderful family life at this point. But if he's relatively new in the faith, there could be the tendency for him to feel proud about having ele been elevated to that level of leadership occupied by older, more mature, godly men who've been in the church for many years over a church that's been around a very long time. And we've seen constant examples of this. You don't, I don't have to even point out to you, we've seen this happen over and over in some very well-known churches. And we inferred from this, this verse earlier, but 1 Timothy 1, 7, this is some of the problem that was at Ephesus. Some of the guys were in, they wanted to be teachers of the law. That's really what they wanted. They wanted to aspire to be over people. What was the problem? 
even though they didn't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So they were young in the faith. They didn't understand the basic things that they needed to understand, but they wanted to be elevated to the position of leader. And in that sense, we get the second part of the warning. Look back at verse 6. And so he'll not become conceited. There's the first part. He's going to have pride. And number two, fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So Paul says the newly planted convert through his inexperience and unwarranted conceit about the fact that he's in a position that he's really wanted raises himself up only to get fooled or tempted into sinfulness. And then the same type of judgment that fell on Satan, which if you need to look at that, Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 1 through 15, where he fell from his high position. He was conceited. He raised himself up against the knowledge of God and was embarrassingly and humiliatingly cast down by the Lord from his important position that he had. And I'm summing it up, and it's a terrible passage. And to know the repercussions of all of that and everything that's happened as a result of that is terrible. But that's the issue. And that's a horrible thing to think about. And one that should sober the heart of every believer, but especially a man who aspires to the office of overseer. Experience, seasoned by humility, over time, is a necessary tempering process for an elder. Experience, seasoned by humility is going to bring that person into that proper process for leadership. So you haven't experienced any humility. You haven't had people tell you things you wish you never would hear. You haven't had to deal with difficult people in the church over and over again who tell things and write letters. Listen, that tempers your thoughts about perhaps being an overseer. And you're going to find that that's going to be a good process. And more or less depending on the age of the church. Now, Let's look at verse 7. We'll get to our last qualification of an elder, and we'll finish up. Verse 7 says, He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, again, we're looking at reputation and testimony and character, which we've looked at all the way through with the exception of being apt to teach. Every single one doesn't have to do with processes in the pulpit. It has to do with who you are. And this is another one that's the same. And not just in front of the church, as an example, but it says he must have a good reputation. And that word good is one we looked at already, the Greek adjective kalos. We've seen the word before. It's good and well done and, and crafted well, right? It's, it's the same word we saw that he, uh, what it looks like when a family is underneath the husband. That's good. It's a beauty. As, as you look at a painting, it's not just that he was a master and he did a good job with it, but there's a beauty there. And this is the word, beauty. And he has a reputation, a good reputation. Martyria, that's where we get our English word martyr. It's just a word for the witness of Christ. We understand it's connected to those who are killed for their faith. But just understand that the word has to do with witnessing Christ, of course, results in many, many people's death. Literally, so it is, if we put it together, a beautiful witness. That's the requirement. He must have a beautiful witness with outsiders. So, number 19, the overseer is to be an example to the church of one who has a beautiful or a good witness in the community. It's a non-negotiable. So again, the whole process of calling a pastor, as I've pointed out before, many times in churches is so flawed. You have somebody come and they give their best sermon because that's what they're going to do. You're going to get one time to give their best, uh, best sermon and then you're going to vote whether you want him or not. Instead of looking to see if he has a good testimony in the community and how has his family turned out if they're older and how are they if they're younger, and is he a lover of money? I mean, there's so many questions that have to be asked about uh, an elder as you put him in a position. And this is one of them. 
And that's going to take some time and some examination because he has to be able to manage his own household well. So if he's declared bankruptcy, that could be a question, right? If you didn't manage your household well and then you're in a position where it was a bad testimony among those who lend money to you, right? I've had people come and say to me uh, who were in the ministry, I, you know, I had to declare bankruptcy and they said I don't have to pay any of it back, do I? What? Of course you do. If you're going to have a good testimony in the community, how will you be able to not pay what you owe? I mean, isn't Romans 13, we're supposed to pay what we owe? It's just a very basic principle for those who are in, in the faith, right? So here's the thing. I think it's pretty obvious what Paul's stating here. And, and again, as the Bible explains the Bible, I want to take you to an illustration of 1 Peter 2.11. And this, again, I think will take it from the pulpit to the pew, and that's what I've tried to do all along to make sure you understand that these, these requirements are non-negotiable in the pulpit, but they apply to the pew. 1 Peter does a really good job of that to help us understand this passage. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's very practical, isn't it? So he just says to the church, beloved, listen, abstain from fleshly lust that's going to wage war against the soul. Listen, take control of your thoughts. If, you're, if your thought life is constantly in the direction of immoral things, it shouldn't surprise you that you fail on a regular basis. So take control of that. They don't have to rule you like a king. You know, guys, you're going to have to do that. Ladies, you got to take control of your thoughts. You know, stop the whole gossip thing. You know, if that's the first thing you do every time you're around someone is you're just in this gossip thing about cutting somebody down. Listen, there's a waging war against your relationship to Jesus. It's very, very simple. Stop doing it. Verse 12, he's going to give the reason why, of course, for holiness, and we want to be a pure bride. Verse 12 says, keep your behavior excellent. So he's just kind of summing up, I don't want you to do any of that. Instead, on the other side, keep your behavior excellent. That's our word, kalos, again. Keep your behavior beautiful among the, what's the next word? Gentiles. So who's he talking about? Those outside the church. Same thing that, Peter's, that uh, Timothy's uh, being instructed about those outside the church, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, so there's going to be some slander, there's going to be some cut down, they're not going to like you because you represent Christ, and if they hated the master, they're going to hate the servant. That's to be expected. So in the thing they slander you as evildoers, but you're not evildoers, right, because you're supposed to keep your life pure from those things. They may, because of your good deeds, there they are, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Isn't that great? So at some point along the way, even though they accuse you of wrong, your good deeds will win out, and then when Christ comes and makes everything clear, they'll be able to see that they were actually wrong about you and that you were a consistent believer who lived like they should. All things that we have here also being considered. And so, he gets very practical, and he gets to verse 13. Look at this. In your manner of life. He says, so if you're going to keep your deeds, you're going to have good deeds in front of those who observe you, then, you know, Abstain from fleshly lust. It's going to wage war against your soul. And then he says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Because when you do right, what happens? For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, those who are on the outside. So what's the summary here? Not only stay away from, from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul, but then on as an outward example, on a general basis, you come up under those who are in authority over you. And that starts with obeying the speed limit, okay? And maybe everything else after that. But it certainly it incurs paying your taxes and not cheating and all those kinds of things. And there are a hundred things that we could talk about here, but I think that you can understand them. You come up under those who are in authority. Now, 
In order to do that, you're going to silence, the, you're going to silence ignorant, foolish men who want to point at Christ and say he's not real because you are in a genuine way doing what the Lord wants you to do. And now I will just say as a, as a footnote, there's a lot of discernment that has to be brought to bear on these things as it relates to government. And I think we've seen that over the last two years pretty clearly. And what we have to give to God, we give to God. And the government doesn't encroach on that. But in general, I think you can get it. In general, we obey the rules and do what we're supposed to do. And that silences foolish people. And so that's one of the things I think that brings this blamelessness from the pulpit right into the seats. It's exactly the same thing. So it's your reputation in front of those who watch. You're not an island unto yourself. So he has to have, it says, verse 7, a good reputation, it says, with those outside the church. So these are the people we're talking about. What's his reputation then in the community? A man chosen to be an elder, a man chosen to be a pastor in the church must have a reputation for righteousness, for moral character, for love, for kindness, generosity, goodness, those things we've looked at among everybody in the community that knows him. And we looked at being temperate, and that's the word for wineless. We looked at uh, he doesn't go in the way of alcohol. So that, again, comes right in with this idea of how does it appear to the people who look at you, see? And that understanding fits well. And now keeping a beautiful witness in the community, not everyone is going to agree with what you have to say about Jesus. See, that's why as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Sometimes when you talk about Jesus, people aren't going to like that. They won't agree with your worldview. There will definitely be some antagonism connected to your worldview, some false accusations like we saw in 1 Peter. The issue is, though, moral character, the personality that the world sees. Because as a believer, and certainly as a leader, there's no way that you can impact your workplace or your neighbors or the community that's around you if you've given them reason to disregard your character. You can say one thing, you're a Christian, and do another and act like the world, and you're going to have a hard time reaching people who have no respect for you. And that's why we ended last week with Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. In other words, as you do whatever job it is the Lord's given you to provide for the needs of your family, do it heartily as if you're working for the Lord because what? You are. The Lord makes it clear that the hurdle is higher than the boss because hard work we see adorns the gospel. You make the gospel look good when you do what you're supposed to do, not just when they're watching, but when they're not watching. Knowing, verse 24, that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. So you have to be careful that you don't bring reproach on Christ. See, you want the criticism to be unjust criticism, not just criticism. People say, I'm being persecuted at my workplace. Well, the first question I ask is, is it because you're not working hard? Is it because you're doing less than what you should do? Do you have an attitude when you come in? Do you have a chip on your shoulder? Do you, do you uh, cut down the people who are over you? Well, then, yeah, you're probably going to get some criticism. And it's just what we want to do is suffer unjustly. Whether anybody knows it at that job or not, it, you do a good job, you're suffering unjustly, and that's what the Lord says is the way it's supposed to be. Because someday He'll vindicate you. And that's the next, then there's this, bringing reproach on Christ. This is the next part of verse 7. He says, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so we know who that is, so that he will not fall into reproach. Onidismos, it has to do with shame. It's reviling. It leads to embarrassment. We don't want to do things so that we're reviled. 
because we're acting wickedly. And he will not fall into, in Pipto, eris subjunctive, so the mood of possibility. It's possible that if you continue on this path and you're not reining your life in in front of the world, you're going to fall into reproach if the course is not reversed. This is the direction you're headed. So when a man aspires to ministry, he has to be evaluated as to his ongoing reputation in the community. Lest, if he stays on this course, he brings disgrace upon himself and by default on the church. See, And Paul was writing to the church in Rome in Romans 2.24. And, and to the Jews who claim to be teachers, but who lived a tarnished life in the community. Here's what he says. It's horrifying. This is what you never want to have said about you. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Just think about that terrible statement. That the way we could live our life might make people who are outside the church blaspheme Jesus and a relationship with him because of how we lived. That's certainly a possibility, see. It's so important what your reputation is in the community because you're not an island unto yourself. There is visibility. And the more leadership you're in, the more visibility there is. That's the whole thing with, you know, it's so grieving as a father of a law enforcement is to see a few law enforcement officers do things that are completely against policy and, and violate every kind of direction they've ever had in training. And then it throws that disrepute on everybody, doesn't it? Not because there are not a million officers out there, hundreds of thousands of officers doing the right thing. It's because everybody's focus and attention is on, well, this must be how everybody is. See? You don't want that in Christianity either. We're not an island to ourselves. There's a visibility. There's one standard of godliness in the pulpit and the pew, see? Philippians 2.14, we looked at this before. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you appear as lights of the world. Do everything without complaining and without arguing. So if we just started right there in the world around us. We're not complaining, we're not arguing, we're not you know, denigrating people and things and all that and watching what we say. You'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. Where? Outside the church, see? I mean, obviously, we have to walk in holiness here. Obviously, we have to treat one another with godliness and, and bear one another's burdens, obviously. But in the outside world, we're supposed to walk in such a way that we can be blameless and innocent so that when they look at us, eventually, they're going to see that we appear as lights in the world, that it's a genuine relationship with Jesus. As we've said before, Christianity is its own best argument and its own worst argument, right? It's its best argument when you walk as Jesus walked. It's the worst argument against itself when you say you're a believer and don't align with anything that the Scripture has told you to do are very few things. And we, we looked at this one before. It's one of my favorite passages in Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. What are we focusing on again? Here's the church in Colossae. Are we talking about people inside the church? Oh, we're talking about people outside the church. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Do you know you have to ask for wisdom on how to talk to people? Even that neighbor who continues to drive in your yard and, and whatever he's doing, blow his leaves on your side and, and uh, you know, you have to conduct yourself with wisdom. How, how are you going to do that? Making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. Why? Because they're outside the church, and you represent Jesus to, every, to all those people, and you represent the church to those people. So this is just everywhere. It's not just here, see? It's everywhere. It's every church, every individual. You have a responsibility. What you do in the community 
is what Bereans doing in the community. See, it doesn't matter what I say here. If I go and live like I want to live and I don't have a good testimony, it doesn't matter what I say here and how holy you are, I'm bringing, I'm bringing disrepute on the name of Berean. See? And it's the same with you. And on the name of Christ, which is an even higher standard. Why all of this? For everyone, but especially for the elder. Look back at 1 Timothy 3, 7. We're going to wrap up. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare, here it is, of the devil. Here's the idea. And that word snare is a word we've looked at numerous times. It's a word for net or trap. Earlier in pride, you can share in the same rapid, embarrassing demoting that happened to Satan because of pride. Here, though, Satan is doing the trapping. And again, not because we're anything special in comparison to all that goes on in the world, but we can understand from this passage that there is a real desire by the evil one and our real enemy, by the way, and the unholy angels to be about setting a trap to discredit a believer and undermine the testimony of someone in leadership. See? Not necessarily motivated by wanting to embarrass some specific person, but to undermine the credibility of the Lord. See? And, you know, unholy angels don't have a vendetta against me personally. I mean, they may have a dislike for me, but they don't really care whether Kurt does one thing or another. What they really like is for Kurt or anyone else in leadership to betray the faith he's taught for a long time and make it look like whatever he said is now called into question. To have people blaspheme his name and scoff. Jesus is a relation, a relationship to Jesus isn't real. It doesn't do anything real for someone. It's a crutch. And we know that the devil goes around as a roaring lion, seeking to devour people in their sins. That's the context of that passage. It's used a lot, but that's the actual context of it. And it's not that Satan has any access to you outside the Lord. You under, I think you can understand that. I mean, the Lord may use Satan and, the, and unholy angels to accomplish something in your life. We certainly see, and we've looked at tons of examples about that, so you know that. But through his own filter, and he's doing what he wishes according to his own plan and for his own glory. But you put yourself in a position where then Satan is going to lay a snare for you. You remember when the Lord talked to Peter, he said that Satan is desired to what? Sift you like wheat. It's not a word you want to hear, right, from Jesus. Satan wants to sift you like we. You're not going to let him, right, Lord? Right? Me and you, right? Well, what actually happened? Peter's like, I'll never deny you. I'll never. I'm, I'm with you to the end, right? But what actually occurred? And Peter denied the Lord in front of everybody who was an outsider around him, right? And brought into such sorrow I can't even imagine and despair, because he set the trap, right? Satan set the trap. Peter walked right into it. The Lord warned him, this is, what's, this is where it's coming. He goes around as a roaring lion seeking to devour people in their sins while you keep short sinless. That's why you don't let hidden sins follow along behind. They're going to come, become visible. You don't want them to become visible in this major way where you undermine everything you've said to everybody over the years, especially starting in your own little family. Now that I have grown sons, that's, that's abhorrent to me that I would in some way embarrass them in that I have said all these things to them and then somehow undermined all of that because I decided to do what I, the very things I've told them not to do, see? Not only do I want to, I, I want to be uh, 
transparent before the Lord and, and let him purge me and do the things that we sung just a little bit ago. But I want to make sure that I keep that short sin list so that when those guys get grown, they can go back and say, hey, dad wasn't perfect, but he loved Jesus. It wasn't fake. And the things he told me are the things that I live by, see. Satan's a deceiver of the nations. That's one of the names for him. He's a liar and the father of lies. And when he speaks, he speaks their, that native tongue. He uses skillfully laid snares to deceive people and to trap believers and trap leaders and destroy their integrity. That's what you don't want. 2, Timothy 2, or 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul reminds the church of some things that they need to do. And he says to them, do them so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we're not ignorant of his schemes. He's telling the church to forgive each other and bring somebody back in who's been disciplined. Make sure you do it, right? Lay, allow Satan to lay a snare for us. We're not unaware of his schemes, but I think a lot of people in the modern church walk around in that precise mode. They are unaware of his schemes, and they allow things in their life on a regular basis that could be used, beside, uh, apart from God's grace, could be used as a snare to betray the very thing that you say you believe. That's what you want to avoid. Not just leaders, every believer. We don't want to be trapped by a carefully laid snare because we know that he does that. Now, we're, we're done. Beginning with blamelessness, those 14 things we just looked at, that's what God expects of those who lead the church. And the point of all these qualifications are that it's not just for them. That's why we've seen there's no double standard here. The Lord wants, do you think that really that the Lord wants anything less than blamelessness from everyone? I mean, it's non-negotiable in the pulpit, but does he want something less than blamelessness from his church? He doesn't want anything less than what we've seen and described by what it means to be blameless. Do you think he wants anything less than, than temperance and faithfulness to your spouse and, and good behavior and obedient families and good reputation and spiritual maturity? I mean, and we could go on and on. I mean, I think we can see that very clearly. We've, we've spent some time with that. So I think you know what you have to wrestle with if you have something there. That's my desire to bring it. And that's what it's always like when you exhort and, and you bring imperatives from the Word to the congregation, and I have to wrestle with it in my office, and, and you have to wrestle with it here. And may we come out where the Lord wants us.